Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. The Center of Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, welcome to uh, everyone who's here in Jones Hall and uh, to those who are uh, tuning in by Zoom. Uh, we have a uh, Center for Thomistic Studies colloquium today. Our guest uh, speaker today is Dr. Christopher Wolf. Uh, who's on the faculty here at the University of St. Thomas in uh, political science. Uh, he's a graduate of the University of Dallas for his undergraduate and Claremont Graduate University for his master's and doctoral degree. Uh, he's written on uh, John Rawls and uh, numerous publications on the thought of Alistair McIntyre. And uh, he's a very good dear friend of the uh, philosophy department here. And uh, we're looking forward to his presentation today. So thank you. thank you very much. Good to see everyone and thank you for coming in today and for those online as well. It's uh, good to see some, some, some friends out there. And uh, my talk today is called Unalienable Rights and Some Libertarians. I had some, uh, some friends in the philosophy department after, before this talk ask me, uh, did I choose that title because there's a book by Etienne Gilson called Being and Some Philosophers. And I think that that title was ringing in my head, perhaps, and that's why I chose to call it that. But uh, um, there, there's a reason I use the word some, some libertarians. Uh, and uh, in part, it's because uh, of what I've been teaching my Trivium students this semester about the difference between all and some universal affirmation versus uh, um, particular affirmation. Uh, but uh, so I think that was partially what was in my head as well. But um, yeah, the title is Unalienable Rights and Some Libertarians. This paper is part of a larger project I've been working on about unalienable rights. I presented a, and published my first paper on this topic at the University of Dallas at the University Faculty for Life Conference in the summer of 2018, just before I moved here to Houston to take my job at UST. Little did I know at the time, but unalienable rights was about to become a hot topic. In the summer of 2019, President Donald Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that the State Department would be establishing a new commission, a commission on unalienable rights. Perfect. <laughs> I see this commission in many ways as a commission similar to President George W. Bush's commission on bioethics. For a number of reasons, uh, that was the commission headed, chaired by Leon Cass. Both commissions were created by presidents with the intention of clarifying fundamental ethical issues. And both were staffed with academics steeped in the tradition of natural law, which are as a focus of our Center for Thomistic Studies here at the University of St. Thomas. What I propose to do in this talk is three things. First, I will introduce and define the concept of unalienable rights by way of reviewing the proceedings of the Commission on Unalienable Rights that has just been established. They've just come out with their first major report. Second, I will argue that the concept of unalienable rights is incompatible with the public philosophy of libertarianism. Third, I will survey the writings of libertarian philosophers, economists, and law professors to consider whether their ideas are compatible with unalienable rights. You might have some libertarians who might agree with unalienable rights. But I, although I think the deeper philosophical anthropology that they espouse in their public philosophy is incompatible. In my earlier paper on this subject in 2018, I made the claim that libertarianism as a public philosophy was incompatible 
with unalienable rights simpliciter. But I only considered Nozick as an exemplar of libertarianism. I was following Michael Sandel in doing that. But the truth is, there's a great variety among libertarians, both in terms of how closely they stick to the libertarian principles and which principles they adopt. It is clear that some libertarians reject unalienable rights. Should all libertarians reject unalienable rights, given their philosophical anthropology, though, is a question worth considering, especially given the prevalence of libertarian ideas in our culture. And this last point, I believe that's true, whether or not people even acknowledge the libertarian principles that they, uh, they, they hold. I believe there are many unacknowledged libertarians out there. They just don't know that they're libertarians. But first, let's discuss the State Department's new commission. The chair of the Unalienable Rights Commission is Mary Ann Glendon, a Harvard Law professor famous for her 1990 book, Rights Talk, The Impoverishment of Political Discourse. Now, with a title like that, it should come as no surprise that the commission's report published this year finds that discourse about rights has strayed away from its original grounding in the rich ideas of natural law and, and unalienability. There are more rights defended today by the United States and the United Nations, but the grounding of those rights is on a thinner basis. At times, the grounding of some of them is the mere wish that one had a right. At times, the claimants of these rights even admit that their ba the basis for their rights is mere convention. This is a problem. In the words of the commission report, quote, the erosion of the human rights project has resulted from widespread disagreement about the nature and scope of basic rights. The disappointment in the performance of international institutions and overuse of rights language with a dampening effect on compromise and democratic decision-making. Human rights are now misunderstood by many, manipulated by some, rejected by the world's worst dictators and subject to ominous new threats, end quote. The goal of the commission therefore is to provide intellectual resources to overcome those problems, to better understand human rights. One thing missing today is modesty with regard to human rights. When the original Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written in 1948, it was only a modest list of rights that were put forward because that was what the consensus of countries could agree on then. Now, as more and more rights are claimed, problems arise for deliberation because these rights serve as discussion stoppers, trump cards. I mean, trump cards is in bridge, not Trump as in the president. From this standpoint, the proliferation of rights claims ironically leads to, quote, intolerance, it impedes reconciliation, it devalues core rights, and denies rights in the name of rights, end quote. One idea that might help delimit and reground human rights is the idea of unalienability. According to the commission, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights mainly finds its grounding in a parallel idea to, to unalienability, which is inherent dignity. That a right is inherent, that might seem similar to its being unalienable, but there are significant differences between those two concepts of something being inherent versus something being unalienable. The idea of inherency is a thinner concept than the idea of unalienability. It says less 
and it's more ambiguous. As a result, the commission claims that, quote, direct appeal to human dignity by itself is inadequate to the task of distinguishing between legitimate and unfounded claims of right. Dignity itself is a deeply contested idea, the content of which varies dramatically, not only across cultures, but even within our pluralistic societies. On some of the most deeply divisive contemporary moral issues, for instance, the legalization of voluntary euthanasia, dignity-based arguments feature prominently on both sides of the debate. You hear the pro-voluntary euthanasia people say, death with dignity. And then you hear the anti-euthanasia people say, no, dignity of a human life, even when at the end, at any stage. Which one's right? You can't tell just based on the idea of human dignity. What the commission does not claim, but I would claim, is that voluntary euthanasia would be rejected if we believe in unalienability. To kill yourself or have yourself killed is precisely, in a very literal way, alienating your right to life. Going back to what the commission says, though, so they didn't say that, that's me saying that. What, what the, going back to what the commission says, though, the idea of an unalienable right found in the American tradition uh, well before the Declaration of Independence signifies that this. What, so what does, what does inalienability mean beyond just inherent dignity? It means this. It means the right is inseparable from our humanity. It is universal and non-transferable. Human beings never lose their unalienable rights, though they can be violated, because such rights are essential to the dignity and capacity for freedom that are woven into human nature. The point that unalienable rights are non-transferable, I believe is crucial. Michael Sandel analogizes unalienable rights to non-transferable tickets for airline tickets, for example, or to sports events, like the ticket I want to buy on StubHub to the Arkansas Razorback football game against Texas A&M. A website like StubHub tries to make it difficulty, difficult for me to turn around and scalp the, scalp the hogs ticket in order to make a profit. Only I can use the ticket and I can't give it away to anyone else. That's the way that unalienable rights are. You can't give them away. You can't alienate them. Unalienable rights. Another way of thinking about inalienability, to borrow a phrase from the philosopher Bernard Williams, is that unalienable rights are logically welded. They're logically welded to the human essence. They're welded to the self. They're not duct taped on or something. And they can't be broken off. They're welded on. One critique I might make of the Unalienable Rights Commission uh, discussion is I think they use an overly simplistic contrast between unalienable rights and positive rights. They say that those are, that's the big contrast. That's overly simplistic, I think. Um, all unalienable rights are natural rights. True. But there may also be some alienable rights that are also natural rights. There might be some. According to Locke, I alienate the right to punish crimes done against me in the state of nature. Uh, I alienate that once, I, once we form the social contract, the right to punish crimes myself. I put that in the hands of the police. Um, so that's, that's a natural right, I believe, to punish injustices. But at the same time, it is an alienable right. So I think that that's a third category. And so I, that would be one um, little critique I would have of the commission's report. Um, 
Rights such as the right to life, though, and private property, religious liberty, and other liberties, those are unalienable rights because they exist before, during, and after any social contract or government recognizes them. Those are the unalienable ones. Um, that's a small quibble. On the whole, I think it's an excellent project, the Unalienable Rights Commission. The most interesting question for the commission, I believe, is not whether it will persuade people at the United Nations with their arguments, but whether it will help educate Americans to, to rediscover unalienable rights, the idea behind the American regime itself. There's some serious obstacles to that goal, I think, in part because many Americans today either explicitly reject the ideas of the Declaration or believe things that impl implicitly lead them to reject it or distort it. I would argue that the public philosophy of libertarianism is inherently incompatible with the Declaration's idea of inalienability. And hence, this is one of the factors that distorts Americans' views on unalienable rights. This brings me to my second point, why libertarianism is incompatible with unalienable rights. Libertarianism is a public philosophy that came into its own in the 20th century. It has much deeper roots, back to Smith, you might say, though. Libertarianism consists of at least two principles, limited government and the free market. David Boaz, in his 1998 essay, quote, the, the coming libertarian age, includes those two principles and a longer list of principles that libertarians hold, such as individualism, individual rights, spontaneous order, the rule of law, the virtue of production, a natural harmony of interests, and peace. Libertarians might believe in some of those, might believe in all of those, but I believe that all libertarians believe in the free market and limited government. They believe that government should never force people to accept specific moral beliefs and use the government force to do that beyond the protection of individual rights. Some libertarians even believe it is wrong for the government to even encourage people to have a specific moral worldview, to even encourage them through the law or through other means. Morality is individual's business, not the government's business. As such, libertarians believe there should be a line between morality and law and that all relations between citizens are to be based on consent and voluntary contracts. Human beings at their base are fundamentally choosing beings, according to the libertarian philosophical anthropology. They wouldn't say rational animal, they would say choosing being. Robert Nozick claimed in his 1980s classic, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, that human beings are little else than choosing beings. The philosopher Thomas Nagel was correct to call Nozick's book Libertarianism Without Foundations, since he assumes almost no other attributes of human nature besides choosing. Nozick, just like his liberal interlocutor, John Rawls, believed that anything can be alienated from the self if one chooses to do it and that you would be morally justified in doing so. A distinction between persons is all that's acknowledged for Rawlsians and Nozickians. Other qualities of human beings, including their basic motivations, are possessions for them. Possessions that individuals may divest themselves of. This unencumbered self, as Michael Sandel calls it, yields a radical autonomy of the individual from all moral obligations. It comes as no surprise that Nozick believes you have the moral right to commit suicide or even sell yourself into slavery. Nozick recognized that that put himself at odds with unalienable rights thinkers, such as John Locke. This is to quote Nozick. Locke would hold that giving your permission 
cannot make it morally permissible for another to kill you because you have no right to commit suicide. My non-paternalistic position holds that someone may choose or permit another to do to himself anything. He puts that in italics. Do anything unless he has acquired an obligation to some third party not to do or allow it. So in other words, unless you've already consented uh, or made a contract with someone that you will not commit suicide, it's perfectly fine to do it. Contrast Nozick's statement with his famous statement, with, with this famous statement about the state of nature from John Locke's second treatise, quote, but though it be a state of liberty, yet it is not a state of license. Though man in that state have an uncontrollable liberty to dispose of his person or possessions, yet he has not liberty to destroy himself. That was Locke. Likewise, Locke says this about the right to sell yourself into slavery. He says, a man not having the power over his own life cannot by compact or his own consent enslave himself to anyone, nor put himself under the absolute arbitrary power of another to take away his life when he pleases. Locke differs from Nozick on this point because he ad adheres to a very different philosophical anthropology. It is a more encumbered self that assumes the concept of unalienability, one that assumes human beings have basic motivations such as self-preservation which yield natural rights. When a, a right to life is unalienable, there is no moral right to suicide. When a right to liberty is unalienable, there is no moral right to sell yourself into slavery. I would argue that the notion of the self as a purely, purely choosing entity underlies the core principles of libertarianism as a public philosophy. Libertarians argue for limited government by claiming the government does not own you. The government does not own you. That's a repeated argument over and over again, that you own yourself, you own your own body. That's, the, that's a repeated argument. And you should be able to do whatever you want. Many of the immoral practices that libertarians laugh off as those are just victimless crimes. The founding fathers of the United States would punish as criminal licentiousness. This is not only true of drug abuse, libertarians' favorite liberty, <laughs> but also with regard to abuses in the realm of freedom of expression even, such as slander and obscenity. Civil libertarians such as the historian Leonard Levy in the 1960s were shocked to find out that even the handful of founding fathers they thought agreed with them Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were not true libertarians. None of the founding fathers were. Jefferson and Madison had no moral objection to censorship of seditious libel. That's that was surprising when historians found that out. They considered it to be license. They considered seditious libel and other abusive uses of free speech to be license as John Locke did. Jefferson and Madison protect, protested the Alien and Sedition Acts in the 1790s. And so that's why libertarians thought they were on their side. But they did so, we found out later, not for moral reasons, but for reasons of federalism, constitutional reasons. Uh, in a letter to Abigail Adams in 1804, uh, Jefferson talked about that, the fact that he was, he was encouraging prosecutions of seditious libel against him as president. And he said, I'm not being inconsistent. Quote, nor does the opinion of the unconstitutionality and consequent nullity of the Sedition Act remove all restraint from the overwhelming torrent of slander, which is confounding all vice and virtue all truth and falsehood in the United States. The power to do that is fully possessed by the several state legislatures. They fully have that power and he wanted them to use it. 
Were Jefferson and Madison simply hypocrites for protesting sedition at one time and defending it at another? De prosecutions for sedition. Well, they weren't hypocrites on this topic. Uh, might have been hypocrites on other topics. I would even fully acknowledge that, but not on this topic. They, they believed that freedom of speech and indeed all liberty was governed by the bounds of morality. It was governed by bounds of morality. By contrast, libertarians disregard the moral concerns that clash with liberty because the maximization of autonomy is what fundamentally guides the libertarian way of thought. However, what should we make of other libertarians besides Nozick who might em embrace the ideal of inalienable rights? Nozick is not the only libertarian. Well, this is my third topic, the varieties of libertarianism. The differences among libertarians mainly consist in how limited they, they want the government to be. Um, Anarcho-capitalists like Murray Rothbard believe there should be no government at all and that private entities should replace government entities in the roles they currently serve. Other libertarians, such as the economists Milton Friedman, Ludwig von Mises, they accept a large welfare state, but argue its functions should be carried out in competitive ways with free market solutions. In between, we have no thinkers such as Nozick, who argues for a minimal state that would provide security for life and liberty, but little else, nothing else actually. There are also divisions among libertarians with regard to how principled or pragmatic they are. For example, many economists are pragmatic libertarians because they believe the free market simply works better than the government regulation. Not because they believe there's a moral imperative to honor the free market or, or liberty, but they think it works better. And so actually this is one of the big, I would say commonalities between conservatives and libertarians is they just think that the free market works better. An old conservative, uh, Peter Lawler used to say, we need to use libertarian means to achieve conservative ends. Use the, use the libertarian means. Um, so there's a, there's a great variety in terms of how much they embrace the principles. Sometimes they don't care about the principles, but they want to still promote the same means as libertarians. According to the Cato Institute's Encyclopedia of Libertarianism, quote, some advocates of libertarianism do not accord to individual rights a fundamental or even central role in justifying libertarian positions, end quote. For example, famous Austrian economists like Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek did not really believe in a concept of moral rights at all, much less unalienable rights. In contrast with their, econo with, in contrast with their e economist brothers, most libertarian philosophers, on the other hand, do believe in individual rights. I will discuss and critique four prominent libertarians' views on, on unalienability. Number one, the famous novelist Ayn Rand. Number two, the Hungarian philosopher Tibor Mechen. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I've, I don't know how to pronounce his name really. Uh, the chief anarcho-capitalist, Murray Rothbard, and the prominent originalist law professor, Randy Barnett. So first, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand was an unapologetic egoist when it came to ethics. What is in the individual self-interest is the only thing that determines what he or she morally should do. As such, Rand argued for rights but only because a world where rights are respected is in the individual self-interest. She says that, quote, rights are conditions of existence required by man's nature for his proper survival. If man is to live on earth, it is right for him to use his mind. It is right to act on his own free judgment. It is right to work for his values and to keep the product of his work. 
The place of rights then within Rand's egoist ethical framework, I think bears a distinct resemblance to rule-based utilitarianism. As Bernard Williams once pointed out about rule-based utilitarianism though, it has an inherent tendency to collapse into act-based utilitarianism. Rule-based utilitarianism is the view where you, you have the greatest good for the greatest number, you generate rules for all society, and you have everybody follow that, and that's what would be rational and moral, just. Act-based utilitarianism is where we go into each situation and we kind of do the calculus ourselves, not according to rules set, set forth ahead of time, but just on the fly saying, what's best for me right now? What's in the, the greater interest, my greater interest usually right now, or maybe in everyone's interest, but um, that's the difference. Williams points out in his book, uh, Morality, some reasons why the former almost always collapses into the latter. You set out saying, I'm going to be a rule-based utilitarian. I'm going to be an egoist who believes in rights. And you switch over to judging each distinct act, its contribution to your self-interest. And maybe just let everyone else follow the rules and respect the rights. But why, not, why shouldn't you? It's in your self-interest at times. Rights in general, and especially unalienable rights, seem on very shaky ground with Rand, I believe. For reasons such as these, the Hungarian philosopher Tibor Machan argued that there were additional moral reasons for respecting rights beyond just self-interest, as Rand had argued. He argued for rights based on what he called a neo-Aristotelian concept of human flourishing, that justice and respect for rights is actually a good in itself. According to Machon, the choice to live a life of rationality also commits them to a system of enforceable principles that protects and preserves the requirement that all persons obtain the moral space for their moral nature, end quote. From what I can tell, Machan's view of unalienable rights is, it, it is traditional and it is compatible with unalienable rights and the natural law tradition. So he seems like a bit of an exception to my rule about libertarianism being incompatible. It should, should be said also on this, there are very few libertarians who follow Nozick's uh, idea that you have a right to sell yourself into slavery. Almost none of the libertarians besides him say that. And I think in part because there was a strong influence from John Stuart Mill on libertarianism. And John Stuart Mill in On Liberty says by selling himself for a slave, he defeats his own case for the very purpose which is the justification of allowing him to dispose himself. So Mill had said, you can't sell yourself into slavery. So it's actually unusual that Nozick said that. Most don't say that. For example, Murray Rothbard in his book, The Ethics of Liberty, argues that selling yourself into slavery would not be a valid contract. Quote, there is no transfer of title in such an agreement because the seller's control over his own body and will are inalienable. Since that control cannot be alienated, that agreement was not a valid contract and therefore should not be enforceable. The agreement was a mere promise, which it might be held he is morally obligated to keep, but which should not be legally obligatory. And if you know about the American law, such contracts are not legally obligatory. Our, our American law mirrors this. Liberty from enslavement appears to be the only unalienable right for Rothbard though. He says, yes, I believe in unalienable rights, but it's only the unalienable right that you are always in control of your own body, basically, your own will. It's unalienable, he says, 
because a person cannot alienate his own will. This is true, but only in a trivial sense. To allow oneself to get addicted to drugs is in a way enslaving oneself to them. Nothing Rothbard claims would argue that it would be morally wrong to do that though. Because you're still choosing it. You're still consenting it to it. Consent and choosing is always behind the libertarians' claims, even to unalienable rights. There's always a consent element behind it. That is not the same sort of theory that unalienable rights, that natural law thinkers or John Locke put forward. Because it amounts to one unalienable right to alienate all the other rights. <laughs> it's, it's one unalienable right to alienate all other rights. One ring to rule them all. <laughs> In truth, Rothbard and Nozick, they actually hold the same view, I believe. But Nozick was perhaps more straightforward in just admitting that he denies unanimal rights. But if, if your one unanimal right is to choose to do anything, it about amounts to the same thing, that you don't really believe in unanimal rights. So lastly, the prominent originalist law professor, Randy Barnett. Uh, and by the way, most of the pr prominent originalists in law, law schools are not conservatives. I would say a majority of them are libertarians, like Randy Barnett. Most people don't know that. But he similarly claims th that he believes in unalienable rights, but only the right to possess, use, and control one's person. End quote. Pace Nozick, Barnett believes and our argument for inalienable rights is not paternalistic, simply because advocates of rights argue that restrictions on everyone's options are on balance best for everyone. First, such an, a universal argument for inalienable rights denies everyone the same options, and therefore does not put advocates into any type of parental stance toward others. Secondly, all rights, not just inalienable ones, can be advocated on the grounds that individuals be permitted the liberty that rights provide because liberty is good for them, end quote. So at the end of the day, the unalienable right to self-ownership takes lexical priority over the other moral concerns for Barnett as well. Barnett does make some interesting arguments defending rights in the context of punishment though for violating criminal law. Barnett shows that the forfeiture of a right when a crime is committed does not constitute an alienation of the right to liberty. The choice to commit a crime, which then receives a punishment, depriving one of the right to liberty, is not a contradiction of the notion of unalienable rights. So the forfeiture of a right, that's not a contradiction actually, because there's no moral right to do the crime in the first place. Barnett is right about that. As Abraham Lincoln once pointed out at one of the debates with Stephen Douglas, he cannot say people have a right to do wrong, end quote. So in conclusion, thanks for listening. Um, there may be some libertarians who feel alienated by the president's new commission on unalienable rights. And that's because libertarians usually don't really believe in alienable rights. That makes sense given their philosophical anthropology. But libertarians need not feel alienated. They can always adopt Tibor Machan's path. However, the Tibor Machans of the world ought to also reconsider their deeper philosophical commitments and certain of the conclusions that follow, that their fellow libertarians make about morality. Thank you. Uh, so we'll be taking uh, questions both from uh, people here in Jones as well as uh, people on uh, Zoom. If you're on Zoom and you'd like to ask a question, I'd ask you to use the hand raise uh, feature. 
uh, and then uh, I'll call out your name uh, when it's time. But uh, I think if you have a grad student question uh, first, if there are any questions uh, here in Jones or on We can talk about anything. The commission, unable rights in general, or libertarianism. Uh, we have a question from Father John Sika. Let me uh, unmute him. Hi, Father John. Oh, Thank you're you. on mute. Thank you for your thoughts. Um, I, I was thinking a little bit about unalienable rights and the, um, the Catholic tradition. And in particular, um, I was wondering a bit about some of the, the items that might be on that list. So early on, you mentioned, for instance, that some thinkers think that property is an unalienable right. And that had me thinking because um, one traditional distinction I was given about religious life was that the solemn vow of poverty is distinguished from the simple vow of poverty, precisely in as much as one basically alienates one's right to property, not just one's right to use it, but in, in principle to have it. And that made me think how a lot of the things in our religious tradition, in fact, are like that. So you have the solemn vow of of chastity, which alienates, if we want to use this language, your right to matrimony, the solemn vow of obedience, which certainly alienates your right to use your person as you wish. And I was thinking too of things like the mercedarians who have a vow of, of giving, selling themselves into slavery for um, the redemption of, of other persons. So I don't think this necessarily contradicts what you're saying. But I would be interested to hear how, how that fits in with the notion that these are inalienable. And then I would add one further thing. Um, can you actually interpret the, um, the death penalty as not being an alienating of the right to life of the, um, of the person being executed? Thank you. Fascinating. Thank you for that question, Father John. I'll take the last part first. Real quick, yes, on, the, on, the, on death penalty, yes. Uh, in fact, a lot of these discussions amongst the libertarians about unalienable rights and forfeiture of rights with regard to punishment, they dwell on the issue of capital punishment, you know, and some of them agree, some disagree. Um, on the first part, you, you raise some very interesting, some very interesting points about uh, the priestly life and the sacrifices of, of goods involved in the priestly life and, and in taking vows. And that it's a supernatural calling we, we must recognize. Uh, but um, I think what it might bring up here is, is something that I bring up in, a, in the paper. Uh, you know, what's the etymology of this term unalienable? When did people start using that? Um, Yes, there, alienation had to do with property rights actually from the beginning. Uh, and um, you'd have you know, liens on property uh, is when, it, when people started using this. Interestingly, John Locke does not even use the term inalienable. He doesn't, strangely enough. But it's, it seems very clear that he presupposes that concept in his entire social contract theory. There's no way he couldn't believe in, um, because he, he talks about you, these rights are not lost or something like that. Um, but later thinkers like Pufendorf and uh, other, um, other thinkers in that early modern era, uh, they, they begin to use the word uh, unalienable, and, and then the founder, American founders all use it. But, but it, 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 re, it does relate back to private property rights as its initial etymology. And um, it's, an, it, it's an interesting thing, uh, the natural right to private property. Uh, is it fully unalienable when we have things like in the American tradition, uh, eminent domain of private property? that seems like you're giving up the right to private property and that the government could force you to do that. But the distinction that, that the founders drew on that was to say that things like eminent domain, where there's just compensation for taking of property, 
for the common good, for the purpose of the common good, unlike our takings today, which since the Kilo case, sometimes you have takings for not the common good, um, but uh, that, uh, that, that that did not constitute a violation of the right, but infringement. They actually drew a distinction between infringement and violation of the right of private property. Um, not, everybody, not everybody would be satisfied with that answer, but uh, it's at least the answer from tr the tradition that's given. Thank you. Sort of, it's, it's interesting that, like, you know, in the, in the beginning when you were talking about the description of what unalienable means, um, that that it's sort of inseparable from human nature and things like that. Um, so I guess I guess my question is, when we forfeit a right after having committed some injustice, um, like, in what sense? In what sense are we, I mean, if it's inseparable from our human nature, like what are we, what are we, what are we sort of doing to our human nature when we committed injustice such that we forfeit an unalienable right? That's an excellent question. So Julian just asked, what are we doing to our human nature when we forfeit an unalienable right? And can we really do that? And does that kind of shatter the whole notion maybe about unalienable rights? Um, and that just brings up so many interesting issues. Uh, where my mind went first was a distinction that Greek Orthodox draw, and I think also maybe Dostoevsky, that uh, we're made in the image and likeness of God. You can never destroy the image of God in you, but you can sure lose the likeness, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that whenever we do injustice, uh, in some sense, uh, we are, you know, uh, losing something of our humanity in its fullest. Um, now, you don't just have to think about the death penalty when we're talking about rights forfeiture. That's what a lot of the debates have dealt with was you murder someone, do you, do you forfeit your right, to your right to life then? Well, we don't have to jump right to, murder, right to the death penalty. We can also talk about your right to liberty being lost by, put, by being put in jail. You know, you used to have this right to be able to, to, uh, to do whatever you wanted. But you forfeited that by doing crimes against the, against the common good, against the state. And, uh, and now uh, um, you can't exercise that right anymore. And so um, the way that they're, it, it, and so we say, so is the right gone now? It's not so much, it's more that it can't be exercised anymore, I think. And Kant has the force of a moral force, I believe here. Um, I don't know if that's a very good answer or not, Julian, but uh, it's my best crack at it. But good, good question. The forfeiture issue of animal rights is a constant debate for all thinkers of rights uh, from all time, really. <laughs> yes. Next, let's go to uh, Timothy Gordon, who's uh, on Zoom. Hi, Tim. Mr. Gordon, you need to uh, unmute yourself. How are you doing? Great, great talk. Thank How you. Doing? Good to hear from you. So um, you mentioned federalism in a glancing blow there. 
it uh, you mentioned it, as I often hear it mentioned, as a kind of amoral practical justification for small government. I, I, I'm not I'm not sure you meant it in the typical critical way, but federalism, particularly antebellum federalism, um, had moral justifications appearing as the Tenth Amendment police powers, which included morality, you know, health, safety, welfare, morals, security, uh, that pertained to the several state legislatures. These are moral powers in particular that I'm thinking, the, the ability to legislate morality precluded to the national legislature. You know, this all changed after uh, the Civil War. But they, these instantiated subsidiarity, making, I would say, American antebellum federalism the great all-time instantiation of subsidiarity as it's out, outlined by Pius XI. And I, I never hear that argument. I, I'm not a libertarian, but I have whatever overlap I have with libertarians in terms of very limited government views. It stems from the moral justification that is subsidiarian of federalism. Uh, how would you respond to that? I would respond by completely agreeing. Uh, I, um, and thank you for making that point again, that, that's totally true. They, there was absolutely a regulation of morality at the time of the founding. You know, we have all this pornography and obscenity that's defended under free speech now, since the 60s and the 70s Supreme Court cases allowed that. And that was totally banned for most of American history. And you might say, well, where's the federal laws where they say that? There's no federal laws. It was done at the local level, at the state level, because they have, the, states have a, the states have a right to regulate health, safety, welfare, and morals. Yes, you can regulate morality. The, the phrase, oh, you can't regulate morality, that's a libertarian phrase. A lot of people believe that. And that's one of those things that people don't realize they're libertarian sometimes or that they have those premises. And that's one of them. You can't regulate morality. You can. <laughs> and we did. And we do today still at the state level, even though I agree, of course, state power, so much of it has been lost to the big federal government that comes in through the interstate commerce clause, through regulation, through uses of the 14th amendment, to absorb areas that states used to be in charge of and through just bribing states through the use of grants. Those are all ways that state, state power to regulate morality is, is, is being lost. And so, but I think this is in part important, important point to bring up, Tim, also because um, a lot of my friends who are integralists, they get the wrong idea about America. They think it's it was just this purely libertarian design uh, and that there was no regulation of morality. And that, that, that's wrong. You've got to read some history on this, guys, uh, and find out, you'll find out that Jefferson, I, I said that Jefferson had no moral objection to censorship, actually. And he was, in, he was morally, he actually was morally in favor of censorship. That's, he was the opposite of libertarian. Yes. Uh, let's go next to uh, Dr. Oliva, who's also Yeah. Hi, Dr. Oliva. Yeah, hello, Dr. Wolf. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering uh, if the uh, unalienable rights admit of degrees in their exercise. That's a good question. Are they absolute? Would you accept that? Well, in terms of their nature, yes. But, uh, you know, just to take as an example, the um, uh, Me Too movement or uh, issue, issues regarding women's rights, uh, you might hear women have rights, but on the other hand, these rights are not enough. So in what sense they are not enough? Mm -hmm. Do you have any um, explanation of this kind of frustration yeah, uh, that's a good, good question. We have, Marianne Glendon in that book, Rights Talk, 
she not only says that people talk more and more about more rights, but, but also that they defend them in a more and more absolute manner. You know, let's take a right that is fully protected in the Constitution and that was designed to be protected, the right to bear arms. Um, some people will ratchet it up and say, well, right to bear arms means to bear any kind of arms I want. You know, I can have a tank or something like that, you know. Uh, and so you see those kinds of arguments with that, but with all rights and with free speech, I, that I would have the, the right to use my free speech to, you know, do all kinds of things uh, just that would be awful to do, but it would be legal uh, to use it that way. And so, so uh, Dr. Levi, I, I would just say, yes, it's a trend. I'm not sure why it exactly is it ha happening, um, but I'm not, I'm not sure why, why that happens. I don't, I, it, Mar Marianne Glendon has some explanations in that book. It's not, it's not so much brought up in the report. The report and the commission, they're mainly focusing on just the, the, the greater widespread of them. But mm -hmm. at least in, in Marianne Glendon's book, Rights Talk, she talks about it becoming more and more absolutist. And she, she is kind of from a com communitarian standpoint. And um, she thinks it's in a way a breaking down of com communities in favor of some kind of ideal, you know, ideology, basically, mm -hmm. the, the way that ideologies work. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was going to ask if you could say more about the um, notion of free speech being grounded by morality, but it seems as if you, you've already expl explicated on that um, pretty well enough. Um, so I guess I don't really need to ask that question per se, but um, I also had in mind too just, just these blasphemy laws that a lot of states have. I think I've read that they that a lot of states still have them on the books. Mm -hmm. And that there's and it's my understanding too that there's no contradiction between having those laws and this um conception of free speech that the founders had. And that we ourselves seem to have a much more broad libertarian vision of, of what free speech looks like than, than what our founders probably did and um, maybe to the detriment yeah, if people are so upset about fake news and all this, uh, might want to rethink your libertarian notions of absolutist free speech and not, never banning any kind of slander. Uh, and I'd, I'd be glad actually just to real quick give you a summary of the, the ways that moral, morality uh, was interpreted back then to, to bound that liberty to free speech. Laws against obscenity, laws against slander, so that's saying it out loud, uh, laws against libel in print, and especially within that category, seditious libel, where you say, I'm going to try to overthrow the government. Now, what's interesting is seditious libel was a tricky one because they did want free speech to be able to critique the government. The founders did. And, and that's where we had this whole debate about the sedition law, the federalists, John Adams and Hamilton, they said, Oh, you're criticizing John Adams as president. That's sedition prosecute you. Um, and Jefferson and, and Madison, um, they protested it, and then they did the same exact thing. <laughs> they did the same exact thing, except not using a federal law to do it. Um, so, but nonetheless, I do think it's fair to say the American founders embraced the right to critique the government in free speech. And that was actually the main thing they expected it to be used for. It wasn't for free artistic expression. You know, they didn't, that was not really protected under that. Um, there's, a, there's a famous civil libertarian from the 60s, Michael John, and he makes the argument that actually 
those other kinds of uses of free speech that aren't about critiquing the government, those are more protected under the Fifth Amendment liberties, he says, uh, due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Um, but but, but it's, absolutely, it's just absolutely the case, and so, people, so few people realize it, I think, is that the right to free speech can be abused in, moral, in a morally abusive way. And the founders were not okay with that, and, the, and, and we are okay with it now uh, in many different areas. And that's even before we get into living constitutionalism, changing the word free speech to freedom of expression and really getting into some strange areas. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Wolf, for your talk. Really engaging. Um, I want to, so my question doesn't necessarily come from a settled view that I have, uh, but I want to push on, uh, I want to challenge, I guess, the idea of whether uh, inalienable rights uh, are compatible with traditional national law. Sure. Okay. And, and I guess what I want to, I want to question in particular your sort of response to Julian, which was that. Uh, when, when we take away someone's liberty or even take away their life as punishment, um, we are not taking away, they don't lose their life, they just can no longer exercise it. Okay, now this sounds like a language someone that people use when they're talking about powers in metaphysics. Okay? So of course in metaphysics you sometimes use, some people who don't want to say there's something metaphysical in the thing that is a power, we'll say it has a capacity or a disposition, right? And this is language that speaks of kind of, you know, we can attribute this to it, but we're not. We're not, we're not making a metaphysical claim, okay? But powers claims, so claims like traditional Aristotelian kind of powers are an accident that's actually in the thing. It's a metaphysical item, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And this is why Aristotelian can make a distinction, can say that a, a, a substance, so a human being, for example, that is so disabled uh, a person who's so disabled uh, physically that they can't exercise rationality is still a rational animal, okay? They're still an animal that has that kind of rationality. Okay, so moving to the rights talk, my question is, like, what on earth could ground having a right but not being able to exercise it? Like, I would have thought that, like, having a right logically entails obligations on other people that, are, that, that correspond to what the right's about. Uh, like logically entails, like you couldn't have the right and not have those. Um, and it seems like the only way one could get away with having rights that can't be exercised, uh, in the sense morally can't be exercised, uh, is if one comes up with some kind of metaphysical grounding for that. At least according to traditional natural law theory, that would be needed. Not new natural law, of course, throws out metaphysics, right? But, but, but sticking with the traditional. So you understand the question? I do. Okay. Father Raphael Mary just asked a fascinating question to include us here, uh, uh, taking Dr. Hauser's place. Uh, a long question that is going to be impossible for me to answer. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, he to restate the question. Maybe I'm not getting it exactly right. He challenged me to on the compatibility of unalienable rights with the natural law tradition. And in particular, the point about rights forfeiture, it sounds sort of like the idea of uh, powers in the traditional Thomistic metaphysical sense that powers of the soul, for example, uh, that they would not be able to be exercised. Um, and, uh, the, you know, I don't have a good answer for this other than that, really, I think unalienable rights talk only really works when it's mixed in with natural law thinking as well. And I think that was the case with John Locke, and I think that was the case with the founders. Uh, you know, John Locke's, John Locke's own notions of the self are pretty thin. I believe in tabula rasa. When he's talking about, you know, what is substance, he says it's 
that which I don't know what to say or something like that, uh, that which cannot be said. Um, he, in some ways, his philosophical anthropology at times sounds very, very thin. And then at other times when he's talking about politics, he's sounding like a natural law thinker. Uh, and he might be just smuggling those ideas in. And, uh, and so I would just uh, agree that when we're looking back at the tradition, it's not a nice, neat tradition. But I think unalienable rights agree with the natural law tradition and actually are a really nice way of expressing it and a really good way to distinguish from voluntaristic directions that libertarianism goes. Thank you.